Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I would say that the real training that you get in connoisseurship often isn't taught at the graduate level. It's in fact something that you can only be taught by experience. What I left graduate school with and then what I have managed to gather up in my head since that time, that's what makes you a connoisseur. That's Dr. George T. M. Shackelford, Deputy Director of the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, since 2012. A prolific author and globally renowned expert in 19th century painting, he previously served as Chair of the Art of Europe during a 16-year tenure at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and before that, Chair of European Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston for 11 years, and previously a guest curator and David E. Finley Fellow at the National Gallery of Art for the exhibition Degas, The Dancers. He received his MA and PhD in the History of Art at Yale University and graduated summa cum laude from Dartmouth College. He was decorated as a Chevalier dans l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the Republic of France in 2005 and promoted to Officier in 2012. He grew up in Louisiana and happily has never lost his distinctive drawl. Welcome, George. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here, Max. I am so glad to have you. And to give our audience a sense, you and I go back an inexcusably long time. We, we were, <laughs> I believe, two of four art history majors at Dartmouth College almost half a century ago. And That's exactly the right. day after we graduated, I believe, literally June 13th, we started as summer interns at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Is that that's, that's right. correct? We had to that, zoom down from Hanover? I remember it well. <laughs> well, and I promise I won't dwell too much on that shared past, but I was hoping if you could conjure up a memory from that summer internship, if you remember anything from it. Well, I remember a lot of things. I was in the print department and you were in the uh, Greek and Roman department, which got both of us started on the world of drawings and prints on the one hand and antiquities on the other. But honestly, Max, the memory that sticks with me the most was when, in revenge, I should say, for an incredibly uncivil, haughty welcome to the Lehman Collection, you and Rosa Lowinger ordered a sweep the kitchen pizza for the curator of the Lehman Collection, delivered COD. <laughs> and that was a, a memorable prank and well-deserved on the curator's part. I, I can safely say I have no memory of that, honestly, but maybe that just led to a lifetime of pranks. I don't recall any of them. I'm an upstanding person, George. I, I know you are, exactly. And so is Rosa, who is now a distinguished conservator. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were, you know, just 21 or 22. Yeah. So that's exciting. And we were drafted into service in the front desk of the Metropolitan Museum at the 82nd Street entrance in the Grand a Great Hall after just Absolutely. a couple of weeks. And we were supposed to yeah. answer questions, which were normally, Good. where are the dinosaurs? Or, and there was, <laughs> or the bathroom. Or the bathroom. And there was that famous person who asked, where are the trains? He thought he was in Grand Central. <laughs> you were at the desk when Jacqueline Onassis also paid us a visit. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, and Caroline so was an employee of film and television. She joined that department the same day I was in HR on 82nd Street. Fantastic. So that was a long time ago. And much has passed, much water under the bridge, including here we are today. We're beginning the next phase of the pandemic with flu season approaching. 
And you, in your role at the Kimball, I'm curious, both curatorially and administratively, how has the Kimball approached reopening? We followed the lead of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, which was the first art museum in Texas to reopen. And they had a particularly smart approach, asking people to print their tickets at home. We don't have tickets, so you didn't have to do that. Standing in a line and having their temperature taken. They went to a really great extent to make sure that everyone who came into the building was at least not showing any signs of COVID. We have had a much slower attendance in general, and we were particularly happy to be able to reopen the exhibition in mid-June and to prolong the exhibition of paintings from Capo di Monte that we had on view for only two weeks before we shut down in mid-March. We have a quite even and measured attendance, which is reaching about 40% of our normal expected attendance at this time of year, which is pretty phenomenal because many people are not able to get nearly that many people through the door. Happily, it's been very ordered and civil and everyone wears a mask. There are jars of sanitizer everywhere. And just last week, our buffet opened up with box lunches. So we're back open in many ways. Our shop is open, but with limited entry. And we haven't hit the capacity that, say, the Met would hit if its doors were open wide without a reservation and and a ticket in advance. And so the experience of a visitor must be somewhat different, however, with all of these precautions in place. It is. We're asking people to socially distance themselves. We're learning how to space out material and sort of engagements with the public so that they will be able to enter an exhibition, enjoy it, and then be able to stay far enough apart from each other to keep things safe. It's an interesting process to watch how people behave, and our guards are occasionally having to remind people that they should socially distance themselves from each other. It's not a problem in the permanent collection where the works are really quite spaciously installed. So that works very well. In the temporary exhibition, people were gathering around wall labels and texts. So we have now learned for our upcoming exhibition that we will make those very short, very big, so that they can be read from afar, and very spaced out. It's changed our planning. George, the Kimball has a particular remit, which is distinctive from a lot of other museums across the country that focus not only on an encyclopedic mandate, if they have one, but on the art of the contemporary world. And that form of art has washed over art history like a tsunami in the last generation. And I remember when Impressionism and Post-Impressionism, your field, were the coin of the realm. I'm wondering, what is the state of public interest in the field of 19th century art these days? Well, we found in Fort Worth, the public is still very much interested in 19th century art. The exhibition I organized last year of Monet's late work, which began the survey in about 1914, a little before, and extended to his death in 1926, it was the second highest attendance in the Kimball's history, we believe, and certainly the highest attendance in the last 20 years. So there was a great interest in that, but it's, of course, exceptional. Very large paintings, boldly colored, brightly brushed, and extraordinarily pleasing, an exhibition where you can think as much as you like or as little as you like while you're going through. 
There is, I think, for the rest of the 19th century, in general, across the United States, it's very, very difficult in terms of the public interest. You will have a couple of museums like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, for instance, which has long committed itself to the sort of history of the 19th century, particularly in France, doing exhibitions of Corot or Courbet or any sort of artists like Chasseriot or Giraudet. Those projects are feasible with a much larger area of people to come into the museum and study those projects. With a smaller city, smaller population, we have to reckon that those kinds of projects are not going to be necessarily of the greatest interest to our audience. And while you could say that we're not in the business of organizing exhibitions just of the things that our audience is already interested in, there's also a sort of orneriness to going ahead and organizing an exhibition that you know no one will be coming to see. That's a kind of hubris, I think, on the part of a, of a curator who wants to please themselves rather than creating something that they can influence and educate the audience with. We've done this repeatedly, of course, with exhibitions of artists like the Brothers Lenin, which we showed in 2016. And it was an exhibition which was extremely important and seen by many, many distinguished visitors, but less attractive, frankly, to a broad public who was not particularly entranced by 17th century French genre painting. Mm -hmm. Max, I'll have to apologize. You may hear in the background the tinkling of the <laughs> uh, of the tags around the neck of one of my two Cocker Spaniels who are sitting watching me, uh, wondering what I'm doing. Well, and our listeners are wondering what their names are. Their, their names are uh, Thomas and Jack. Thomas and Jack. Excellent. And they're Texans, I take it? They, they are Texans, okay. absolutely. So I'm curious about, speaking of younger life forms, younger scholars who are emerging from graduate training, although I saw at your alma mater at Yale, they've decided to cancel the acceptance of any new students in their graduate program in art history this year due to the pandemic. I'm curious about how younger scholars in general are emerging in their training, not just in post-structuralist theory, which is the vogue that's been in place for a generation, but also in formal training that would allow them to exercise judgment about something as rudimentary as art authentication. I think that is a, a, a very important question and something that I worry about. I would say that the real training that you get in connoisseurship often isn't taught at the graduate level. It's in fact something that you can only be taught by experience. What I left graduate school with and then what I have managed to gather up in my head since that time, that's what makes you a connoisseur, really, that kind of experience. But what I'm worried about is not that people aren't being taught that kind of thing, but they are not being taught to respect it. I remember when I was a graduate student, I worked with the very great scholar Robert Herbert, he was my advisor, who was very, very interested in the social history of art. And not as interested in issues of connoisseurship and attribution. But Bob was a scholar who respected the fact that you needed to look very, very hard at the object itself before trying to take it apart 
and analyze it in any kind of social, historical, or nowadays, as you say, post-structuralist theoretical way. And I think that that may be the big difference, that there's a crowd of people who are coming out of graduate schools with no interest in that and little respect for it. I think that's too bad. Those people will inevitably, if they join the ranks of the curatorial, they'll get that experience and be shoved into it one way or another. The people who don't head towards the actual contact with works of art, those people have a chance of, I think, missing out on a complete dimension of the work of art, which after all was in most cases something that the artist created. There are, of course, exceptions to that in terms of conceptual art. But in general, what we're talking about even nowadays are physical things that are made and that then are there to be looked at, enjoyed, interpreted, understood, misunderstood, you know, misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. And they're out there as an object that we need to first look at and sort of understand what it is physically. In a way, that's seconding the judgments about attribution and authentication to the art market, which is a risky thing. I think that's exactly right. But you know that the art market quite often goes back to the scholar, the museum curator, the university professor who in fact has developed a particular expertise in one artist or another and whose opinion matters to the market as well as to uh, another scholar. I think though that the question of who has the final say, for instance, on the attribution of an object is something that's pretty interesting (laughs) and complex. And we have only to look at the questions of attribution that attach to major works of art that have been traded in the market in recent years, with some people saying, I believe, others saying, I don't believe. And we have to realize that it could be, in fact, in the market's terms of opinion about attribution could be a very important Mm -hmm. factor. Could you share an experience you've had in attributing or authenticating or debunking an object? And how do you go about assessing that when you're seeing a newly surfaced picture purporting to be by a celebrated artist? Well, you know, Max, as curators, we always had people who had found something imported at a garage sale and believed it to be a work by Van Gogh was, I think, a particular favorite of attribution. Those are one thing. For instance, things that enter the market that on two occasions, I've been able to help an auctioneer realized that the thing that they had up for sale, in one case from an extremely distinguished private collection with an extremely distinguished provenance, was in fact not an original but a reproduction. And that just, honestly, that just happened because I had had a particular experience recognizing something, the same thing, not the the same physical object, but one of its type, I had been able to recognize that that was in fact not a drawing, but in fact a a facsimile. Mm -hmm. And when the same composition came up for auction two years later, I was able to call the auctioneer and say, you better unframe this Mm -hmm. because it risks being in fact a facsimile. And indeed indeed it was. And George, a lot of scholars who have been prepared to offer their opinion have been caught up in a legal tussle where their opinion has led to perhaps the lack of validation of a work that had previously had a high fair market value. 
doesn't that risk trouble for scholars who are willing to stick their neck out? That is why we always have cover your bottom language in our in our opinions when we issued them in the form of an email um, and indeed say out loud when you're dealing with somebody in person, this is my opinion, it's only an opinion and it could be wrong or or doubtful. Right, but even if someone of your stature or a colleague has an opinion, as you've said, that can be definitive, that can actually have an effect on depressing the market value of a particular object without the intention of doing so, but simply you're being yeah. honest and having your opinion. Sure. And we know of cases where uh, where owners of works of art have in fact sued curators uh, for having expressed an opinion or in fact even just uh, conveying the opinion of someone else. I think those are extraordinary circumstances. I think usually the owner of an object is gravely disappointed, mm -hmm. but not angry at the person right. who uh, delivered the news. I do, however, know of one scholar who was sent a letter with a, with a vague threat to her safety, mm. that if she said anything more about such and such, she would not be a very happy person. Right. And that was profoundly scary. Of course. Yeah. You mentioned how rare it is for the garage sale to turn something up, but you and yes. I have a we had a professor at Dartmouth, Dr. Joy Kenseth, who found a Vowermans, right? A 17th century Dutch picture in exactly that sort of circumstance, right? And we know that it absolutely can happen. It's, uh, it's the kind of thing that, that something, something gets knocked around and, uh, and is in maybe a country auction sale that's the, virtually the equivalent of a garage sale. And someone smart from the the city happens to see it and recognize it as being uh, misattributed and absolutely something that is very very valuable. You wouldn't be talking um, about the Salvator Mundi, I'm sure. Well, that's one. <laughs> that's one. But I also know of paintings uh, paintings in France mm -hmm. that uh, that uh, you know we are all. Uh, uh, aware of the Chimabue that was discovered in someone's kitchen, uh, but it was sold with its attribution absolutely uh, intact. The other question could be, you know, an 18th century painting that appears as, you know, portrait of, of X and uh, no attribution and someone realizes that it's by Largillier or Boucher or Natier or something and gets uh, scooped up and, and re-entering the, the uh, auction uh, or the public art market with a with a, a reinstated attribution mm -hmm. and a much uh, higher value. George, speaking of reevaluation, yes. Paul Gauguin has for decades been celebrated as among the key protagonists in modern art, but the Me Too movement has recently been looking back in time and Gauguin, among other artists, is now being decried for having been a pedophile who exploited the very Tahitian girls shown in his pictures. So I'm curious as a scholar and as a member of the field in such high standing, how does scholarship grapple with the personal conduct of an artist when it's central to their art? It's very interesting, Max. Uh, I organized an exhibition about Gauguin at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. It was also at the Grand Palais in Paris in 2004. It was incredibly well received. Every every review was good. We were all so happy with the with the reception that it got. The catalog was praised. And then just last year, the 
National Gallery of Canada and the National Gallery uh, in London organized an exhibition about Gauguin's portraits, which was a very, very beautiful and interesting exhibition. And the change in the in the public printed reaction to the exhibition was absolutely astonishing. The critics could barely touch on the art as art. So interested were they in the art as a reflection of the character of the person who had made it. And there was effectively a call to cancel Gauguin. I found this troubling. And it is certainly something that we have all had to reckon with. The question as to whether we should have dealt with it more explicitly in 2004. Should we have called to our visitors' attention the fact that Gauguin was a, a lousy human being in many ways, instead of simply calling their attention to the fact undisputed fact, in my view, that he was an incredibly important and great artist, and also an artist whose writings and whose most profound contemplation of, of works of art, his own and the art of the past, was very, very moving and you know important for us all to read and know about. I don't know what we're going to do with the work of artists who are discovered or who are revealed in some cases where discovery was already made, revealed as being of bad character. It's something I'm, I'm interested to watch. I, I don't really have a, a, an opinion. I was able to visit the exhibition in London without being worried all the time about Gauguin's character uh, because I wanted to see the works of art again and in, in the flesh. It's something I'm not quite mm -hmm. sure how we're going to reckon with it. And I'm sitting back a little bit and mm -hmm. watching. It's a tough mm -hmm. situation that, we, that we're in where the past is subject to a complete reevaluation. It's tough stuff. And the, the calendar has decided that you and I are reaching an age in which some of those decisions are going to be made by other people, that is, younger scholars who are coming of age. And that pipeline is wider than ever, especially for museum professionals, with programs that are devised to encourage people of color to enter the field, supported by the Mellon Foundation, the very successful Center for Curatorial Leadership, which you and I have helped along. What's your forecast of the appetite of college-age students pursuing museum work as we did? I think that there is an appetite for people who want to pursue museum work, but who honestly, I don't think, have the intention of making a career in the field. People who think that working in a museum would be a good thing to do just after they graduated from college, or people who have gone and gotten an MA, which have absolutely proliferated in the last generation have gotten an MA in the history of art and believe themselves ready in every way to take on uh, responsibility in an art museum. It's tough because there aren't enough jobs and in certain respects, there aren't enough candidates. There are many people who have gone through programs that have promised to give them the credentials they need to go into a museum profession and there aren't enough 
professional slots. I think that the biggest problem that we face now is one that you mentioned, which is how to interest a broader range of people in terms particularly of their economic or racial diversity. I think that if you are, say, a first-generation college graduate in your family, art history is unlikely to be the real course of interest that you're going to pursue. We're being called on, quite rightly, to diversify the ranks of people working in museums at positions of great authority within the museum. And it's incredibly important that we are able to do so. And in fact, finding the candidates is our biggest challenge right now. And it's going to take the support of people like the Mellon Foundation. The Ford Foundation, I know, is also very interested in this. The Walton Family Foundation has also been uh, very, very supportive of creating positions specifically headed towards people of color. Mm -hmm. And our alma mater, for instance, has contributed to that diversity by having a really brilliant young curator of Native American art who is uh, going to be, I think, one of the stars of her field. Mm -hmm. And that with the support of Ford and Walton Foundation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, with the pandemic having gutted museum revenue and museum attendance, would you compare how museums supported by government, like those in Europe and Asia, are faring versus private-supported museums stateside? And I don't mean the Kimball because you have an exceptionally significant endowment. What about the broad swath of private museums? Well, let's take the situation at the Musée d'Orsay to the situation at the Met. Because the core budget of the Musée d'Orsay is guaranteed by the state, it is unlikely to be affected by the pandemic and the, uh, and the downturn in a stock market in the way that a museum's financial position can suddenly create a crisis in the United States. That's true as well, I think, for museums within the states that are guaranteed by government. Our national museums, for instance, have not faced the budget problems that our private museums like the Metropolitan have faced, or the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, or the Art Institute of Chicago, or even the Kimball. All of these museums have been forced with the fact that we had to reduce the number of employees we were paying at a time when our income basically ground to a halt. In a public museum, in a national museum particularly, what you are worried about is the future and whether the Ministry of Culture or the legislature in some way will reduce the subvention to art museums and cultural institutions in general. At American museums, you face that problem much more vividly and quickly when suddenly things are dire. You know, in the Netherlands a few years ago, the ministry said, we will now provide state support indexed to your attendance, which was a very clumsy effort to try to sort out a mechanism. And in Britain, we've been watching a push for commercialization and earned income that rivals the appetites of U.S. museums. So I'm wondering, with your colleagues there in Britain, how is that changing choices about exhibition programs and acquisitions? You know, I honestly can't answer the question about acquisitions, but I know that 
it's very important, for instance, for a museum like Tate, whether at Tate Britain or Tate Modern, the attendance at temporary exhibitions is very, very important to the ongoing health of the institution. And you have perhaps, um, I don't want to be cynical, but it perhaps leads you to choose a topic like Van Gogh in Britain, which was brilliantly done at Tate Britain last year, but nonetheless a choice where the name Van Gogh could be guaranteed to help bring people in, as opposed, say, to the case of any other French artist of low renown who had escaped to Britain during the Commune. That's certainly a subject that wouldn't be of immense public interest. So I think that there is an eye to making sure that people attend exhibitions. On the one hand, I think we can stand back and be cynical and say it's organized just for attendance. But what about thinking of it this way? If we are going to bring works of art before the public, we need to organize projects that are going to be desirable to the public. We can't force people to want to see something that they're unsure as to whether it'll be worth their while. It's therefore, in a way, more rewarding to organize an exhibition that you think is going to be well-received than it is to organize an exhibition that you're unsure about and be incredibly disappointed that all of your hard work and the expense and the risk of bringing the works of art all together in one place hasn't been worth the effort. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that sort of calculation, Queen Nefertari's Egypt is soon to open at the Kimball, which will, we all hope, provide, if you'll pardon the expression, an oasis yes. in the midst of a very challenging national moment. How do you plan to measure its success given restrictions on attendance? We are obliged to stand back and say, this is not going to have the attendance that we normally would have expected it to have because we cannot let that many people into the exhibition at once. And because we absolutely have to limit our visitorship, limit the capacity of people in the space, we will not have the great attendance that we expected to have for, uh, for an exhibition that could be freely visited. The pandemic has caused enormous number of problems of a logistical nature with the organizing of exhibitions. Many have been rescheduled or postponed or in some cases absolutely canceled because it was impossible to get the works of art from one place to another correctly in an era where international travel is virtually impossible. And we've run into uh, questions of, in fact, when the exhibition could open. We're sure about when it's going to be able to be open now, but it's later than we had anticipated because it's going to take us longer to receive the exhibition and to install it than we had previously expected. We're facing the unfortunate fact that we're just not going to be able to be open long enough to get as many people as we'd like to through the exhibition. We've got an excellent plan. There'll be the sort of lines that you'll almost certainly have to wait in after you get to the museum are all uh, laid out on the floor and scheduled to be perfect and tested in terms of social distancing. 
And we will know how many people we can let into the exhibition when we know how long they stay in the exhibition. This is another calculation that's almost impossible to make in advance. But as I said earlier, we're looking for means of making the visit really rewarding, but not dangerous. So as a, for instance, we are not having audio guide stops that concentrate on one particular object. In fact, the audio guide will have a number on the wall, but it won't be tied to a specific thing that people will therefore gather around to look at while the audio guide is being spoken. The tour is going to be much more general to tell you about everything that's in the room around you rather than to go into depth with one particular work of art, which is in general what we have done in the past. Technical issues like that are being thought out, and this will be our first experience with a COVID-era exhibition. I'm looking forward to an exhibition about Turner next summer in 2021, and I am planning to use more gallery space than I had originally intended because I'm going to need to stretch the works out and hang them farther apart in case we are still faced with social distancing next year. Well, George, I'm sorry we're so socially distant as New York and Fort Worth, but I'm glad to have a chance to catch up with you today. And thank you so much for making time to share some of what you're experiencing and some of the ways in which you're adapting to it. Well, thank you so much, Max. It's been a great pleasure to be back with you. We've been speaking today with Dr. George T.M. Shackelford, Deputy Director of the Kimball Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.